You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 11. Now, before we begin, I just wanted to take a second to thank you. Yes, you for listening to the podcast. And I know that this is pretty much a one-sided conversation, but I would love to hear what you think. So head on over to either Instagram or my website, and let's continue this conversation. Comparison. It's so toxic because it goes one of two ways. One of two ways. When we compare ourselves to another person, are they thinner than I am? Are they prettier than I am? Do they have a better job than I am? Do they have a a more expensive handbag than I have? Whatever it is. If we compare ourselves and we position ourselves as the loser in that scenario, all it does is make us feel smaller. What happens when we feel smaller? We probably are going to have a tendency to not be so good to ourselves. Maybe that is in the form of starving ourselves or purging or just beating up on ourselves verbally, internally, right? Mm -hmm. So the net effect of that is I compare, I lose, now I feel smaller. The smaller I feel, the more likely I am to compare and the more likely I am to feel worse and it goes on and on and on and on. The other scenario, if we compare ourselves to someone else and decide like, oh, my jeans look cuter on me than this other person or my boyfriend's handsomer or whatever it is, emotional Twinkie, it's a, it's a bump. It's a hit for the ego that doesn't last. It doesn't sustain. That is Jennifer Glass, one of New York City's best therapists named by New York Magazine. Jennifer did her master's in social work, four-year post-grad training in psychodynamic psychotherapy, and has her private practice all in the city. She is a dear friend of mine, and I'm really excited to share our conversation. Well, first of all, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to do this. I know we've been talking about it a bit, so I appreciate your being here. Of course. I'm so happy to be. Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of starting from the beginning, I know we were talking about all different ideas that we wanted to talk about because there's so, so many things that we could, but something that you had said really stood out to me. I really loved it. And I wonder if you can just expand on that just as the way of beginning, you said something about being seen, heard, and loved. That was kind of like a really big thing. And I wonder if you could just say more about that. (laughs) Yeah, they are really big things as it turns out. (laughs) So true story. I was uh, with a bunch of people, good, good friends of my partners. And we were celebrating his 50th a couple of years ago. We're out of town And we were going to host this dinner for all of our friends. And it was early in the morning and everyone was probably still asleep. And I was thinking like, oh God, I have to give a speech right at some point. What am I going to say? How do I honor this lovely human being who I adore? How do I honor him? How do I say the words I want to say that that will give meaning to this relationship and this human being? And as I was jotting down some thoughts I, it kind of came to me and I thought, you know, there's no better compliment you can pay a partner than to say with you, I feel seen, heard, and loved. And then immediately I was like, okay, that couldn't have been my novel thought. Like I stole that from somewhere. <laughs> Somebody, it I read sounds that. too good. <laughs> it sounds too good. And, and of course, you know, it was, it was probably a, you know, a patchwork of different people who I've leaned into reading and learning and understanding various theories that you and I are both very familiar with. I'm sure Brene Brown played a part in this. Some she of what always I've, does. Doesn't, I just want to follow her around for the rest mm-hmm. of my life. She is so relatable and, and so vulnerable, ironically, not ironically, (laughs) 
And, and some of what she puts out there is sort of reductive, but I think that's the point. It's meant to be palatable. Exactly. And so after I did, I wrote this speech and I used those thoughts, I have encountered multiple times hearing various people sort of put those thoughts together in slightly different ways. But so these are not novel ingredients, right? This is, this is not, I wasn't building the wheel here, but maybe it's my own recipe for how I conceive of those critical aspects of human existence being so important. They sound kind of Captain Obvious, like, right, we all want to be seen, heard, and loved, like, duh. But do we spend enough time really thinking about what that means? You know, we can hear someone or we can listen to someone, but are we hearing them? We can look at someone, but are we seeing them? And to love someone is to see them and hear them first. And then we learn to love them. And I think the same can be true, very importantly, the same can be true for ourselves. And so I think in our daily lives, I would hope that the listeners can relate to seeing and hearing and loving people in their lives, being vulnerable and authentic with the people that have earned that trust from us. But do we take the time to apply that inwardly? Could we consider that that needs to be taken very seriously in the relationship that we have with ourselves? And there's, as you well know, there's so much healing that can happen when we tune in and we see and we hear and we love. So why would we not do that for ourselves? And helping my clients to understand that and to really lean into that is is something I take profoundly seriously. Yeah. I think this kind of transitions into a different question or more of the major question that I wanted to ask you, because there's so many things. I think we can break this down into so many different ways. But you have a very unique way of looking at the process of healing. I really, really love the way that you conceptualize ideas. And I wonder if you can share with us some of what that is, maybe where it comes from, even in first, just a general way. Uh, I love the, don't you love the word healing? Yes. It's a little cliche for us to love it, but maybe (laughs) cliches are cliches for a reason. It is cliche and true. I mean, that's the thing about a cliche, any tautology, anything that, that seems obvious and seems cliche is there because it's true. But I just, I love the idea of healing. And I also love sort of looking at the natural world and finding the parallels that can be intrapsychic there. So when we you know, I'll say to people, and, and maybe you have this experience, I'll have people come in for a consultation and they say, okay, I want some tools. You know, I want to work on this specific thing and I want to get after it and I want to be done and then move on. And I try to psychoeducate people that while CBT, for example, for your listeners, cognitive behavioral therapy, right, is a very, very useful, has great utility in many, many ways, looking at your thoughts and behaviors and feelings and actions and making connections it's great, but it's only part one of the healing process, mm-hmm. right? It's, yeah. it's, it's the Band-Aid and we've all used a Band-Aid. We know that it's important to protect from infection and whatever. But if you put a Band-Aid on a puncture wound, you've got a problem. Big one. Because we have to heal from the inside out. Otherwise, we're going to have an abscess. We're going to have infection. We're going to have all of these things. And so I just love the idea of the healing process in general, but it, it kind of brings me to something that you and I bounced back and forth before today, which is this notion of the compassionate inquiry. 
or inquiry, however that word is meant to be pronounced. There's this. How would you describe it? Um, so, so there's this wonderful psychotherapist who actually started out the beginning of his career as an MD. Do you know Gabor Mate? Are you familiar with him? Have we talked about him before? Only through you. Okay. <laughs> he's he's like, if Brene is my mom, Gabor is my dad. <laughs> he's this fascinating human being. He's Canadian. He came to becoming a psychotherapist because of his work with people who struggled and suffer from addiction, substance abuse. Hmm. And he was kind of at the <laughs> forefront of the harm reduction movement. Mm -hmm. He has this wonderful book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And there's a wonderful quote in there somewhere where he says, if you show me an addict, I'll show you someone in abject pain. Oh, right? I like that a lot. Right. Let's not look at this like they're broken and we have to fix them. Let's acknowledge that there's suffering. And then let's try to understand that suffering and bring some compassion to it. So when the pandemic first hit, and I think you know, as therapists and human beings, we were all scrambling to try to understand, okay, what does this mean for us as humans? What does this mean for our clients? How can we help ourselves and everyone else to conceptualize this? I watched some interview that he had done and he started talking about this thing called compassionate inquiry, which is a framework, which is a theory that he is a platform that he has devised where you can go and you can get licensed in it. And it's a thing which I have yet to do. And I probably will at some point in the near future. So I can't really speak to how he practices within his own conception of compassionate inquiry, but I loved those words and they really resonated with me. And so we have two parts of that, right? Compassion being one. Compassion, of course, as you well know, is different from sympathy. It's very different from pity. It's being able to imagine how someone else feels and try to hold that in ourselves, to try to identify with it in ourselves so we can truly authentically meet someone where they're at. And so the idea of being compassionate is central to therapy. It's central to humanity. But then the other part was equally compelling inquiry, inquiry, whatever, pick one. It involves this idea of curiosity, being willing to question something, being willing to walk into something without attachment to outcome. I don't know what I'm going to find, but I'm going to wander in and be interested in uncovering whatever it is that is before me. And so you put those two things together, a uh, willingness to hold a feeling and a willingness to be curious about something. And to my mind, it was like magic. I was like, right, that's therapy. That's the therapeutic relationship. And there's a humility in that. And there's an unknowingness in that. And to my mind, that is, that's the magic sauce. That's what has to be present in order to participate with someone in their journey of healing. The one thing I say to people when I do a consultation with them after, you know, what's your fee and how does this work and blah, 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 is they'll say, you know, what, what do I, what do I do? How does this work? And I'll say, I have one caveat, just one. I expect you and need you to be willing to be curious about yourself because I can be curious about them all day long. And that's something, but if they can't meet me there, then we've got a problem. Then we don't have two people co-creating something. We have one person pulling teeth and trying to like make sense of something. As long as we are able to be curious about ourselves, we'll get there. And for most people, 
myself included, before I sort of started to understand this, is the idea of being curious about yourself is novel. Yeah. I mean, some of, some of my listeners might know this because I, I might talk about this too much, but I love curiosity. I think it's one of the number one most important traits to have when you embark on this journey. You know, just to make sure that we're not talking about this a little too vaguely or in an esoteric way, when we say curiosity is so important or the inquiry, understand, you know, the curiosity about yourself, what are we being curious? Like, what are our questions? How, how do we how do we take this idea from more of like a, an idea and translate into something more practical? Yeah. Such a good question. And such an important point. I think that taking these ideas and putting them to use are where the literature and the practice always, there's always a disconnect there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yes. So an example of being curious about oneself how many times have, and maybe you've experienced this personally, I certainly have, have we heard a client say, God, why did I do that? Mm-hmm. Right? That's not actually a question. Yeah, it's rhetorical. It's punitive. Yes. God, why did I do that? Right? It's punitive. It's not a question. There's no curiosity in that. It's a, it's a you know, it's punitive. Mm-hmm. And so if we take that same sentence and we infuse it with curiosity, God, why did I do that? It becomes different. And so in the process of applying curiosity, what are we really doing? What we're doing is taking a thought or a process or a response to something that for us would be typically just rote or impulsive or instinctive. I'm going to react to this thought that I'm having in this way. I'm going to, I'm going to have this kind of a response to something. I'm going to just not even think about it. I'm just it's going to have a response. When we put space between something that affects us and our response to it, we allow for the possibility of curiosity, right? So let's say we notice that, I don't know, I'm going to make this up on the fly. Let's see how this goes. We're walking down the street and someone passes us in the opposite direction and they kind of give us a funny look. And we notice that what we do with that funny look is, oh my God, why was that person looking at me? Like, am I dressed funny? Is there something on my face? I feel so judged. Oh my God, I shouldn't have worn this shirt today. Whatever it is, right? Like we go immediately maybe to that thought process. Okay, well, we learn somewhere in our lives to go there with that. But if we put a little space in and we allow ourselves to be curious, it means having a conversation with ourselves, and we can unpack more of this because this has to do with developing and cultivating a relationship with ourselves. We put some space there and go, not like, oh God, why, why do I feel so stupid? This person looked at me weird and now I just feel stupid and awful. I'm just going to go home. Okay. Well, what if we bring curiosity and compassion to that? Okay. So somebody just looked at me kind of funny and I'm having this reaction. I wonder why I'm having this reaction. Why does some random stranger I've never met before have the ability to impact how I'm feeling about myself. Isn't that interesting? I get one funny look and all of a sudden my, my Tuesday is ruined. Can I back into that and be curious about why a funny look from someone might engender this in me? Where did I learn how to go there with that? And which soft spot does that hit? You know, I'm thinking from your example is something that comes up for so many people as you walk down the street and somebody else not even gives them a look, but looks a certain way. And then they kind of compare themselves. And that person is so much thinner than me. And that person has has this type of sneaker or clothing or 
whatever. And I don't, and they're having this, they have this bag or whatever it is. And they do the comparison thing. And then they feel really awful about themselves. And then they're like, well, I don't know. I need to not eat for the rest of the day because I'm too fat because that person was thinner instead of what you're suggesting is instead of going down that rabbit hole to put a little bit of space and say something like, okay, this person, I don't know this person. I probably won't ever see them again. They didn't really even interact with me. And yet I'm having a really strong reaction. Well, let's unpack that. Yeah. Why am I having this reaction? What does it bring up in me? And maybe in a way, like how have I been socialized to respond this way? Exactly. Yeah. What is it possible? You challenge the thought too, right? Is it possible? Is it possible that this person was thinking about something in their own mind and made a facial expression that had nothing to do with me? Mm -hmm. Is that a possibility, right? So challenging all of the thoughts and feelings that come up around it and just exploring it with ourselves. You brought up a really interesting thing that I think a lot about comparison. It's so toxic because it goes one of two ways. One of two ways. When we compare ourselves to another person, are they thinner than I am? Are they prettier than I am? Do they have a better job than I am? Do they have a a more expensive handbag than I have? Whatever it is. If we compare ourselves and we position ourselves as the loser in that scenario, all it does is make us feel smaller. What happens when we feel smaller? We probably are going to have a tendency to not be so good to ourselves. Maybe that is in the form of starving ourselves or purging or just beating up on ourselves verbally, internally, right? Mm -hmm. So the the net effect of that is I compare, I lose, now I feel smaller. The smaller I feel, the more likely I am to compare and the more likely I am to feel worse and it goes on and on and on and on. The other scenario, if we compare ourselves to someone else and decide like, oh, my jeans look cuter on me than this other person or my boyfriend's handsomer or whatever it is, emotional Twinkie, it's a, it's a bump. It's a hit for the ego that doesn't last. It doesn't sustain. So the comparison game is, is so, so understandable and so natural. We all do it. But the important thing to do when we notice ourselves comparing is to step back and say, what's the utility here? What am I learning here? Am I learning to have an emotional Twinkie that only lasts for 15 minutes and I'm going to need another one? Or am I learning that I'm not good enough and why am I reinforcing that narrative? And so comparing is, I'm sure you see it all the time in your practice. I know I do. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. Like you said, it's a never ending cycle that goes badly anyway. I mean, any way that you go about it, it's, it's also reminding me of the going on the scale thing. If you go on the scale and it is a number that you like, then you're good for the day, but it perpetuates this idea that you need the number to confirm how you're feeling and what's going to dictate uh, how it's going to dictate your food. Yeah. And the other way around is if the number isn't what you like, then you feel terrible about yourself. And then you do all of the things to kind of try to make yourself feel better affecting your food intake, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just never, it's never good because either you feel terrible, terrible about yourself just because of how this has been set up, or like you said, the emotional Twinkie, and then you need it all the time. Yeah. So it just sounds, I mean, it's like a whirlwind. It's a whirlwind. Isn't it amazing? The power that we put on that little machine, Mm -hmm. we give it a lot of power. Yeah. You had mentioned the relationship with yourself a couple of times already. And I think that 
maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. Cause I think that so often we talk about this process of healing as it relates to therapy or going to get more of a professional help, which is obviously really important. I mean, we're not biased at all, but <laughs> you know, ourselves are our biggest asset. So like I said, it's important to ask for help. It's important to go to therapy, but without our own minds, our own love, our own self, we can't possibly do this. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more to the relationship that we have with ourself and cultivating that and how, how it is important. Our relationship with ourselves is the most impacting and enduring relationship we will ever have in our lives. And what's interesting is I think that most of us walk around not being aware of that, not being attuned to that. We might notice that we have thoughts in our heads, right? Like we all have a running narrative that goes on in our minds all day, every day. But I don't think we always really recognize that as a relationship. Mm -hmm. it, it is a relationship we're having with ourselves. And so cultivating the ability to think about what we're thinking about, to think about what we're feeling, the observing ego, right? To, to wonk mm -hmm. out on theory for a second, right? But to like put it in vernacular, it's the ability to recognize that we do have a relationship with ourselves. We also learn early on in our lives, for better, for worse, how to communicate with ourselves. And how we treat ourselves, as you well know, is very, very indicative of how we were treated early on in our lives. And so when that goes unexamined, we're simply perpetuating old unmet needs and injuries that may lurk there. But when we're able to sort of tune in and notice our dialogue with ourselves, our relationship with ourselves, how we communicate with ourselves, it's really empowering because we have a choice as to how we reflect back on ourselves. And so you know, putting a little bit of space between, I had this thought, why am I having that thought? Where is that thought about myself coming from? Whether it's, I'm not good enough for, I don't look cute in my jeans today or whatever it is. Like, where'd that come from? Where does that, where did that emerge? Why am I having that feeling? Why am I having that thought? And being able to tune into it. So here's where the internet cut out. And by the time both of us got back online, neither of us could remember where we were. And so forgive me for the choppiness, but I just jump right into the next question. So when we talk about the relationship with ourselves and usually, you know, we're not really aware of our thought process and that we even have a relationship with ourselves. And by putting space in between exactly actually acknowledging that there a is a relationship and b more cultivating, I guess, a positive relationship with oneself, how would you say someone can work toward, I guess, strengthening the relationship that they have with themselves? What does that even look like? Yeah. Oh, great question. What does that look like? There's, there's gotta be a lot of intent to it. Right. And so we have to be able to a be aware that there's a relationship to be had B be able to see what the relationship status currently is. And if there's an abusive relationship going on, start to try to correct that, right? By way of recognizing what our rote instinctive responses are to ourselves. And if we can put the space there and notice what the rote instinctive responses are, be curious about why they're there, how we learn to look or feel 
at ourselves in a particular kind of way, and then be able to, with great intent, make a different choice and shift how we respond to ourselves. If we don't know what's broken, we can't fix it, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can become a third eye and watch our relationship with ourselves and see at times when like, oh, that was particularly harsh thought I had about myself. Where'd that come from? Why is that there? Bring some compassion to it. And then recognize, I actually have a choice here about how I think about myself. It doesn't have to be the old way I've always thought about myself. I learned how to be that way because making this up, I had a critical primary caregiver. I learned to not feel so great about myself because I wasn't emotionally attuned to and decided that I was the problem, not my caregiver, blah, blah, blah. Right. So we can be interested with our therapist, right? We can be interested in where that comes from and how that came to be. But once we notice that that immediate thought or feeling about ourselves shows up and then we can back off of it and see it and go, mm, is that true? Is that true? This thing, this negative thing, maybe I'm feeling about myself. Or did I learn that I needed that to be true for some reason earlier on? And then we can bring intent to it and say, I have a choice here. I can actually try to be kinder to myself in this moment. Does it really matter what this person was thinking or feeling when they gave me a side eye walking down the street? Does it actually have anything to do with me? Possible that it doesn't. Okay, I'm going to choose that it doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm going to choose to carry on with my Tuesday and feel good about myself. That's an option I actually have. Okay, let me lean into that. So it's a lot of intent. It's not it's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. But I, th I guess what I'm hearing is that you're saying the bulk of the work is in the curiosity that brings the awareness and the curiosity that brings the awareness then provides us with choice, uh, intentional choice, as opposed to falling into a, oh, why did I do that sort of way of approaching the world? Right. It, it bring, it's a, there's a lot of governance that happens, a lot of empowerment that happens when we actually recognize the truth that we have a choice as to how we see ourselves and feel about ourselves. There's this thing that a client brought to me recently that I found really fascinating. I use this phrase in my work all the time. Someone will say something and I'll be like, well, can we hold that gently? Can we just hold that gently? And most people kind of understand what I'm saying. But this particular client, he said to me, who's like, Jennifer, that's like, that's like really woo woo, hippy dippy trippy. Like, I know, <laughs> I know what you mean, but like, it doesn't land for me, which is fantastic. Right. He was able to say like, I get you, but it doesn't mm -hmm. quite land. So he metabolized it in his own way. And what he was saying was there's this, there's this mechanism in physics, apparently. I mean, high school was 184 years ago, so I don't really remember, but there's this mechanism in physics. I think he said called tamping. So if you can imagine, let's say it's a ping pong ball in a plexiglass box and inside it's like, you know, no gravity, no, no friction, whatever. And, and the ball is just bouncing around, bouncing around, bouncing around without interference. That's going to keep going. And that's exhausting. That's rumination. That's anxiety. That's myopically leaning into the negative thought or feeling that one has. And it just keeps going, right? It's horrible. On the other end of the spectrum is the immediate cessation of activity. I'm not going to think about this. I'm going to push it away, right? Which we know doesn't work. I use this image with my clients with a, a, those inflatable balls that we play with in swimming pools when we're kids and you try to hold mm. them under the water. And it's kind of fun to try yeah. for a while. And you can, you can do it for a while, but eventually it's going to slide out. And that's a panic attack or that's popping off at someone when you didn't mean to. That's something mm -hmm. catching up with you that you were trying to hold down. So the other on the other end of the spectrum is the like 
stopping something. If you imagine a car crashing into a brick wall, there's a compensatory injury on the other side. The car is not going to fare well in that situation and neither is the person in it. So when we let something go unfettered, it will exhaust us. When we try to shut something down, we hurt. And so the, the happy medium, the thread, the needle in the middle there is the ball's going up and down. Of course, your audience can't see what I'm doing right now, but you can illustrate that I'm like putting my finger up and down and up and down. Okay. I'm having this thought. This mm -hmm. is an unpleasant thought. I don't like this thought I'm having about myself, but I understand why I have this thought about myself and now my finger is slowing down and it, and I, and I can hold it gently. I can bring compassion to why I might feel so negatively about myself. And I'm going to look at what I'm thinking and I'm going to be curious about why it's there. And is it true? So there's a gentleness to being able to take a 30,000 foot view of our thoughts and our relationship to ourselves that gives us the space to really be able to write another narrative about how we might see ourselves. So that's the utility. It's creating the space, being curious, questioning the thoughts or feelings that we're having about ourselves, allowing for the possibility that there's another way to see ourselves in any given situation, and then choosing that, rewriting the narrative. We wrote the first narrative, right? If we grow up for whatever reason thinking, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I'm worthless, right? We can get after why that's there, and understand that we had to write that narrative because it's a coping strategy. It's adaptive at the time. Mm -hmm. Good news is we were the author then. We can be the author now. Yep. And I borrowed that. That's somewhere. I did not make that up. I read that somewhere and I really loved it. And I can't remember who it was, but that made sense to me. Yeah. Well, your delivery was quite good. So we can give you that credit. <laughs> <laughs> I love your example of your client because... A lot of times some of this stuff is lost with people who are either anti-therapy, anti, I don't know, we can just call it the movement. And they're like, ugh, that's like too touchy-feely for me. But this is a human thing. We all need to slow down. We all need to be more curious about my, ourselves. We all need to bring more awareness to what we're doing because then we end up being one of your two metaphors and they both suck. Yeah. So whether you like the jargon or not, it's still important to know. And so we can say whatever words to identify this process. But the bottom line is that everybody needs to do it. Everybody needs to take several hundred steps back and start thinking about why they're thinking the way that they're thinking. And that what I'm understanding from our conversation is what ultimately brings you through this process of healing either out on the other side, or at least down this path of personal growth throughout your lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the sooner in life that we can identify and start to build a relationship with ourselves, the better. And as you know, I, I, I work with young adults, I work with older adults, but I work with a lot of adolescents and being able to cultivate that relationship with ourselves and even be aware that that's a thing the earlier we can do that, the I think everyone should be in therapy, full stop. <laughs> but I think it should be mandatory for, for tweens and adolescents. Because, and that's why, that's why I became a therapist, because I was having some struggles in my early, early teens, struggled with body dysmorphia, struggled with disordered eating. And I went into therapy, and I think it was the first time in my life that I experienced another human being that was genuinely curious about me and my feelings. 
And she taught me how to be curious about me and my feelings. And it set me on a completely different trajectory, I'm sure, than where I was headed had I not had that, had that intervention, had there not been a loving, seeing, hearing human being in my life who showed me how to do that, gave that to me for sure, but also helped me to engender that internally. And so, yeah. yeah. I mean, the word that's coming to mind is resilience. I mean, we talked about Brene Brown for a second, but (laughs) there is this idea of implementing all of this into your life, into your thought process makes you a more resilient person. I don't know, even just on the word itself, do you have more thoughts about that? All the thoughts. I I love that (laughs) word, right? It's again, like curiosity and healing. It's like one of those juicy words. I just want to like bathe in (laughs) because I can, I mean, I think depending every person you ask what that means, they're going to give you a slightly different definition. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's that it's just so fun to sort of pull it apart and imagine what it means to each of us. And I would encourage your listeners to right now sit with that word and what does it mean to them? How do they, how do they conceptualize that? What does that look like for them? It's, you know, I think that the definition is, is somewhere along the lines of being able to bounce back from something adverse and I think they, I think most definitions add with relative swiftness. I don't quite see it that way. I see it as the, I'll use Brene's word, the courage slash ability to tolerate the unwanted. I love that. Because it's being in what is not appetitive. It's being in what is filled with conflict and cathexis. It's, it's being in something that feels hard that we learn to sustain ourselves and ultimately emerge. You know, there's that, there's the image I have of resilience, which is very plastic, right? It's like you rebound something, you, you absorb the impact of something and then you send it back out there. There's a flexibility, a psychological flexibility to the idea Mm -hmm. of resilience. That's pretty beautiful, but embedded in all of it to my mind, again, is the willingness to walk into that, which we don't want to experience. So yeah, which kind of goes full circle to the idea of embarking on the journey of therapy that you have to have this trait of curiosity. You have to at least have the willingness to walk into something that will be uncomfortable at the very least potentially intolerable and be able to stay there long enough that you can teach yourself that you're okay in it. Yeah. Yeah, that it's the it's a muscle Mm-hmm. You now, again, to use a parallel in physical world, it's, it's a muscle. The more we allow ourselves or bring courage to sitting with what feels uncomfortable or unwanted, the more we do that and emerge, the better equipped we are to do it the next time and the next time and the next time. It's a muscle that we have to exercise. And that's the work, right? That's the, mm-hmm. the thinking about how we think, thinking about how we feel, being with ourselves, being curious with ourselves. It's a muscle that we work. And by the way, Sorry, listeners, the work is never done. <laughs> there is, there is Evil never, secret. <laughs> never a point at which, you know, like, I think there's this thing, which is like self-actualization where the Buddha just like psh, disappears into the ETH. Like, okay, maybe, maybe the Dalai Lama got there, but for most of us, it's a practice 
And that's, to my mind, that's the good news. There's always so mm. much more that we can learn and understand about ourselves and about each other. And if we choose to accept the mission, it is an ongoing cycle of transformation and rebirth. I have this, this snake tattoo on my wrist here. Is that a snake? It is. Oh, I see it now. Which Too is bad totally weird because I actually have a full-on snake phobia. Like I can't with snakes. And yet I managed to tattoo one on my wrist, but it's borrowed from Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung. It's called an Ouroboros and it's an archetype, <gasps> meaning it's something that has existed across time and space throughout different cultures that could never have actually communicated to each other that this symbol exists. And what it is, is it's the hero's journey. Hmm. You know, we, we, we're here, we're at the top here. And something goes on and something's really challenging and painful. And then we're at the nadir. We're in it. We're in it. Whether it's grief, whether, call it what you will, a problem, a conflict. Mm -hmm. We sit with it. We walk through the muck. And then we find ourselves at a new understanding of ourselves. But we keep doing that. It's like, it's like a spring. It's not concentric circles. It's an ever-evolving spring, mm -hmm. if you can picture it, going up, 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 where we're always like learning. Yes. Yeah. A good spiral. Yeah. A good time. <laughs> the spiral upward. Yes. Yeah. And then it's obviously not circle, but what's coming to mind also like is the circle of life, like Lion King, that there's, you know, terrible things sometimes. And then there are wonderful things sometimes. And that's life. The question is, how are we going to go through it? Right. Can we access the grace to hold it all? Exactly. Yeah. You know, there was so much information in our conversation and I, I know we've talked a bit about examples and I know that you're also not an eating disorder specialist, but I wonder if we can break down a couple of, you know, even examples of quote behaviors and we can apply them to what we've spoken about just in a couple minutes that we have left. The first one that's coming to mind is exercise because people have a very complicated relationship with exercise. You know, we're not talking uh, to people who have eating disorders that it's pretty obvious that something is like pretty uh, compensatory or obsessive. We're talking, let's say to the person who feels like this is normal and they just kind of are compelled to go to the gym or they don't really want to, they push themselves or they say, well, I ate terribly last night and therefore I need to work out. So a lot of these, um, you know, we can call them the punitive self-talk. How would you kind of incorporate the ideas that we've spoken about today? If someone, you know, they woke up in the morning, they're like, I have to go to the gym. I feel terrible about myself. I need to feel better later. I need to work off whatever drinks I had last night. How would you interfere, you know, using what we talked about? What yeah. would you say to this person? Yeah, great. I had a client earlier in the week say to me, and, and they're very motivated person who really indexes on achievement and self-fulfillment, wonderful, wonderful young woman who shared that she gets up at like five o'clock in the morning and makes sure that she gets a lot of exercise in before she starts her day. So it's a long walk and then it's a, it's a workout of some variety. And then they late, maybe later they go and play tennis. And then maybe later there's a Pilates class, like a lot of exercise, right? So that's got all of my bells and whistles going off. But the first thing that this young woman said to me in session was, I'm so tired. And so we explored that. Tell me about feeling so tired. Why are you so tired? Well, I get up really early because I've got to work out. I've got to do this thing and I have this commute and blah, 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 blah. But I got to get up. I got to exercise. Well, let's sit with that for a second. Tell me about that feeling that you have when your alarm goes off at five o'clock in the morning. And that voice that you hear says, got to get up and exercise. 
how did you actually respond to that this morning? What did it actually feel like to hear that voice? Well, I mean, I just, I, yeah, I had chocolate yesterday. So like, it's like a non-issue. And so then what happened? So I got up and I worked out, even though you were so tired. Yeah, I was really tired and I'm still tired. Like I shouldn't have gotten up so early. Wait, what'd you say? I wish I hadn't have gotten up so early. Oh, so if you could go back and do it again, what would happen? Well, my alarm would go off. I'd have the immediate thought like, I'm too tired to do this. I don't want to do this. And then what would you do? I guess I'd listen, right? Okay. Yeah, you listen. And what would you hear? I'm tired. Okay. And then what would you do? I guess I'd hit snooze and I'd get another 45 minutes <laughs> of sleep because that's what I really needed. Yeah, that's what you really needed. It looks like that. And we can even go one step further. You know, the part of your mind that's telling you that you have to work out because you had chocolate yesterday. What's that about? What will happen if you miss a day of working out? What happens if you miss a week of working out? And that sort of narrative is an, another one that we can look at and create space and create the space for the intentional decision-making to happen. Yeah. And I would put forth that whenever we create the space and the daylight for the kind of self-reflection and kindness that this young woman was able to retroactively imagine, the more we do that, the more we build the foundation for the ability to the next day say, you know what, mm -hmm. just because I had that burrito, does that really mean that I've got to run on the treadmill for an hour? Like, does that make sense even? So when we cultivate compassion of self and cultivate kindness, we just keep building this foundation and this ability to be able to be kinder to ourselves in any kind of interaction. So whenever we can tune in and find those micro moments when we're self-punitive and unwire them, every time we do that, we make it more likely that the next day we can make a better choice for ourselves and we can reflect on how good it felt to not have to set the alarm for an hour earlier than we really wanted to. And we can recognize if we can get to the place of like, it's fine, I can have this food, I can, I can not work out today. If we wake up the next day and can truly absorb how nice it felt to be good to ourselves, and we can really mm -hmm. metabolize that and absorb that, now we're coming from a different place. And now we're more likely to be kind to ourselves the next day and the next day and the next day. So it's finding that space and those micro interactions with ourselves that if we can access compassion and access curiosity and access kindness, it begets, 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 begets. Yes. And then I'll add to that. If it doesn't feel so good the next day that you skip the workout, then we have more digging to do just to find out a little bit more about what's going on, be a little bit more curious. And then we're off to the races. It follows the same pattern of thinking. Yeah. There's always an origin to the path to self-destruction. There's an origin for it. There's a narrative mm -hmm. somewhere. We learned something. You and I had this wonderful supervisor, Len, mm -hmm. who would say, you know, where did you learn to feel that way about yourself? Yeah. Which I use like every day for yes. myself and for my clients. Mm -hmm. Right. So where did I learn to tell myself this story about myself. So yeah, that is a really good time. If you, if you do that thing and you try to give yourself that break that you're asking for, and then the next day it's more self-punitiveness. Okay, let's look under the hood. Where did this come from? Where did I learn how to feel this way about myself? Is it possible that there's something unpacked in here that I haven't found yet? And now we're back to curiosity. 
Exactly. So we're back to compassionate inquiry, the curiosity, and after the entire conversation, which is full of gems, but we're, we're coming back to this one idea. You have to be willing to be curious. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time and your of wisdom. Course, course. I'm really happy we did this, but before we wrap up, can you just let our listeners know where they can find you if they want to? They can, where can they find me? Do you exist on the online? I do exist online. I don't have a website. I'm just not that together. And I'm fine with that. I don't have a website, but if people Google my name, Jennifer Glass, and then LCSW, my degree, they'll, it'll get you to either Psych Today, or it'll get you to My Wellbeing, which is a platform where I'm listed and all my contact info is there and people can find me there. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.